Welcome to the Behavior Groups Podcast. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We interview interesting people in order to unlock insights into behavioral science and how we can apply them to work and life. This episode is sponsored by the new and improved Behavioral Grooves website. Well, maybe not so improved since it's just new. Just pretty much just new. (laughs) (laughs) Where you can find out all things Behavioral Grooves. The website contains all of our podcasts as well as information on our local meetups that are happening around the nation. Uh, As well, you can find out ways to sign up to be a host or sponsor of one of them. Oh, cool. Yeah, so please check out www.behavioralgrooves.com. That's Behavioral grooves.com not behavior grooves and does this have like all the behavioral grooves uh, merch like t-shirts and underwear and hats and coming soon <laughs> so this episode is part two of our interview with rob burnett the founder of well-told story in nairobi kenya our discussion with rob went so well and so long that we decided to break it into two separate podcasts and this episode is part two If you haven't listened yet, part one covers the creation of Shoe Jazz, the Nairobi-based graphic novel or comic book. Shoe Jazz means hero in Sheng, the slang spoken by Kenyan youth. If you haven't yet done so, you should definitely check out part one. Part two begins with a Seth Godin story and gets into sociologist James Coleman's working model on how social change occurs, often referred to as Coleman's Boat. Rob brought it up as a way to recognize the power of every individual's behavior on social change. Rob also detailed some research projects he's embarked on with Tulane University and Cambridge University and how they're gathering data from social media posts to measure the change in teenage attitudes toward unprotected sex. So we expand the story of the teaspoon hustle in this episode as well and discovered that a Scotsman living in Nairobi for 25 years still loves the Blues Brothers. Speaking of music, uh, in addition to the theme music that we include on every podcast, we are featuring the Shoe Jazz theme song called The Hustler, and it comes to us with permission from Well Told Story. So grab a beer, grab an iced tea, grab a yoga mat, or grab the wheel, and we hope you enjoy this part two of a Behavioral Grooves interview with Rob. And if you like what we're up to, please check out our new Behavioral Grooves website that we talked about earlier, and definitely give us a rating on the podcast uh catcher of your choice please 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 five stars write a review let us know how we're doing show us your podcast love (laughs) (laughs) but right now please listen to part two of our discussion with rob burnett so uh, i was reading um seth godin recently the uh the u.s marketing guy who i admire hugely and he has been talking a lot about this idea that people like us do things like this. So this is this idea that as consumers, we, as we make purchasing decisions, what we're asking subconsciously is, do, do, do people like me wear jeans? Do I, I'm, you know, at my age, do I, can I look around? Do people like, do people like me drive, drive a truck or do we drive a, Toyota, do I, how do I, do I decide, how do I, should I, do I wear this hat? Do people like me wear hats like this? And this idea about that I'm always assessing my own position relative to the groups that I believe I belong in, or I would like to belong in, is basically the same story that we're telling, that people are telling themselves when they shift from the waitress to the cashier, or from one tray of eggs to three to bulletproof. They're saying, yeah, I'm in that group. I'm in that group. And then because our media reaches 50% of all the youth in the country, suddenly this thing here becomes normal. The life that I have around me, when I've never met anyone who's succeeded. I've never, I don't know anyone who's ever made it. Oh, but actually I keep reading about people I keep hearing about them on the radio. People just like me, who are behaving a little bit differently to me, they, and their lives seem to be on track. So maybe actually what I thought was normal is abnormal. Maybe that's the normal. So actually what we've discovered is we're kind of retrofitting norms. We don't need to build consensus to build a norm. What we can do is establish a norm 
in the shape of an aspiration and share it at scale until it becomes the norm. So, and there's a model for that called Coleman's boat, which is this idea about how you can retroconstruct a norm through establishing the viability and attractiveness of a behavior and waiting for people to fall in line with that rather than building the mental preparedness that leads to a consensus norm. Well, well you well, are a behavioral scientist. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Rob, what was that called? You said Coleman's boot? What was Coleman, Coleman, like the mustard, Coleman's boat. Yeah. Okay. Coleman's it, boat. The model looks like a boat. And Coleman, I think, was a psychologist from Yale, Princeton, one of those places. It's very Googleable. Coleman's I, boat. We will we will Google and we'll put it in. What you're talking about is really again. It's social proof from a behavioral science literature. What you're talking about is social proof that you have this, my tribe, right? My, who I identify with, what are they doing? Because I don't want to be seen as away from that. And if that I identify with the successful tribe of, of who that is, you're going to, I love the retrofitting norms. It's a wonderful term. So. Well, I, this was discovered recently uh, by farmers uh, who didn't want to, who, who had a lot of information available to them about the, the challenges of, of, um, of weeds in, uh, in the United States and uh, weeds that were coming into areas where they just, they, they weren't really outfitted to manage them. And it, of course, in order to manage them, they needed more sustainable farming methods. And in order to do that, they would, have to do in their mind they would have to change and they mm -hmm. said well we've got all the information but we are rejecting that we're rejecting that because i don't think that that's really going to happen to me or all the rationalization that goes along with it mm -hmm. until the the in-tribe uh people the other farmers stood up and said hey you know I, i've made these changes and look what look what my farm looks like i've got clean yeah. fields and uh -huh. uh, and this and so social proof, as as Kurt alluded to, is tremendously powerful stuff. Uh, and I'm so so glad that you're that you're using it in such a positive and powerful way. This is terrific, Rob. So what's interesting now is that um, we've been running a, a panel study with uh, with the economics department from Tulane University in New Orleans. So that's enabled us to track a cohort of our of young people some of whom are our fans and some of whom are not over the last well we're now into our third year um so as you probably know the uh i mean we run a, a whole number of different studies i think we're running 14 parallel studies at the moment um so one of them every year we do this cross-sectional study, which is a national survey, and we look at randomly sampled young people and it gives us a sense of what does youthful Kenya look like. But that doesn't tell us, that can't get us to uh, causality. That doesn't explain what our media is actually creating or not. Uh, it gives us a ratio. But when you run a panel and you're going back and talking to the same people, then you can, do, you can run regression analysis. You're then in a position to, to be able to isolate cause and effect in a, with a very high degree of uh, attribution. So, yeah. so this panel study has allowed us for the first time, just in the last couple of months, to see very, very clearly what the causal outcomes of exposure to our media are. So, so what's interesting is, I mean, there's, there's really a huge amount of data and it's fascinating, well, for me anyway. Um, but one of the things is obviously our main way of getting at contraception uptake has livelihoods innovation so the story of Winnie and her eggs ends up as a pro contraception story and we barely even mention the contraception piece we just tack it on we call it the peel because it's that last thing at the end oh hang on one last thing the peel um, but the main thrust of the story is how do we give people the tools they need to economically empower themselves and how do we give them the agency the feeling that they can do it so so in the panel we've looked at a couple of things One of them is uh, the economic fortunes of our fans. So we're looking at contraception use, which has basically increased among our most uh, 
uh, ardent fans, which is about a million people who follow us on social media and one other linear uh, analog platform, we've got about an 18% increase in contraception use, regular contraception use. Wow. And what's also interesting is that, um, and that's only it. So the most ardent fan about about a million are, are showing. And then we've got another group who are quite, not quite so ardent who are also showing an effect, but it's just slightly reduced. So the overall effect is really profound. But what's also interesting is that it turns out that these same fans end every month with $22.7 more in their pocket than our non-fans. And that's attributable, at least it's, it's, there's a causal link between us and that $22. $23. And, and it may not seem a lot, but the average amount of money that a Kenyan youth sees in a month is only $27. So actually, it's almost double. And it's associated with this story, this exposure to the story we're telling. So, and what gets also a bit crazy is when you think, well, it's $22.7 a month, it's $250 something dollars a year, it's knocking on a million people it's suddenly $170 million um, put into the, into the youth economy, causally put there by exposure to this story, and a story which is constantly saying, you can do this, you got this, you can do it. People like you yes. are making little changes and look at the success they're enjoying. Yeah. You're what, you're, is there any difference between you and them? I don't think there is. And, so we're, we're quite excited about that data, as you can imagine. And there's lots of other spin-outs, but those are the two kind of stark numbers there. But, but there's a... Huge. Along the way, what we've also been able to do is to analyze really the theory of change. So how does a comic, a story, lead to a behavioral outcome? You know, what are the steps by which a media experience actually translates into a behavioral outcome? And, and the, so very interesting, right? So, so we've had a theory for some time, which is that uh, collective discussion leads to collective belief. So, and we've been tracking that. So we've been saying, well, can we link conversation to, uh, to perception? So, and we've tracked that in a number of ways. So for example, with the University of Cambridge uh, in the UK, we've been, we've taught a computer in England how to speak Sheng, which is the slang that our audience uses. And we're now able to read the millions of online social media conversation that we generate. And we're able to show that over three years, we increased the number of people who were voluntarily talking about contraception went up by 5,000% in our audience. And the sentiment went from overwhelmingly negative to overwhelmingly positive. And it also went from he, she, they, them, I'm asking for a friend to me, I, us, we. And we watch, and you can see it on a graph, how the sentiment and the subject matter shifts, it moves, the proximity changes over time. So, so we were very happy with that. But we couldn't say that that shift led to a behavior. I mean, we argued that conversation is a behavior, right? That actually what we're able to do is to, we can get people to talk about subjects that they weren't talking about before. And that's actually one of the outcomes. So in our theory of change, what we're saying is massive scale media, authentic, stories based on human-centered design, real life role models, real life stories, distributed at scale, step one goes to step two, which is love. It's brand love. And something close to 85, 87% of the people who have ever seen us then subscribe to two or more of our brand love indicators. So do they really feel it? Do, do they recommend it to a friend? Do they recognize themselves in the story? Do they feel that it's talking about them? Do they connect with the, Do they use it to make decisions? Do they learn from it? So from brand love, we see two things happen. The first thing that we can show causally happens is that audience members talk about different subjects than non-audience members. So our audience talk about the taboo topics that we have introduced, and they talk about them with a wider social network than our non-audience. And that's important too. So firstly, they, they're willing to go there and talk about sex, which is highly stigmatized here in, in East Africa, but also they don't just talk to their most promiscuous friends about sex, which is something that we've previously seen. You know, 
if you're a teenager, who do you get your sex advice from? Your most promiscuous friend. Possibly not the best source, right? Um, whereas our audience talk to that person and they talk to their auntie and their big brother and their sisters and their cousins and so on. So we have, and then the second outcome we can see in the data is that our audience define normality differently. So we define a norm as what I think you expect me to do. Mm -hmm. So there are several different definitions of a norm, but that's the one we subscribe to. So we, we at all of our surveys to say, what do you think she wants from you? What do you think he expects you to do under these circumstances? So for example, if we're back to the contraception story, you know, is it okay for a girl to carry a condom on a date? That's a really key one. Or indeed, whose responsibility is it to bring a, a condom on a date? So that would be a good, uh, a good kind of T-junction question for us uh, to, to decide what's your norm on that. So our audience perceive normality differently from our non-audience. So, so now we've, got a, a, we've framed a different conversation and we can show that normal starts to be defined differently. And as a direct consequence of that, we see a behavioral change. So we now see people living out those fresh norms. So they are taking condoms on dates. They are investing in small businesses. They are saving money. They are using digital financial services on their phones. They are thinking about the future. They are more optimistic. They are voting. They are registering in the local, uh, the local uh, government offices. They are innovating. They are, they are full of agency. And actually, above all, that's the metric on which we score highest, is this idea of agency, the feeling that you can, the feeling that you have control, that the locus of control sits with you. And we ultimately are increasingly of the view that that is the key ingredient, and that actually people with agency make good decisions. And maybe that's all we need to do, is give people agency the rest they will figure out for themselves. Well, and you're not trying to figure it out for them. You're, 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 you're abstaining from the editorial that says is, these are the shoulds and the shouldn'ts. Uh, we let our audience do that. We, yes. let our, we let our audience do that. Yeah. Uh, but but that, that whole idea of the collective, uh, you know, collective discussion uh, becomes the collective belief. Uh, this is uh, evident in the United States political system. Uh, uh -huh. uh, the, the norms uh, have changed dramatically in terms of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable uh, based on uh, the, the kind of uh, leadership and the kind of dialogue that has gone, all, gone on with the leadership of what's acceptable and what's not. What are the things that we're talking about? Why are we willing to talk about them? Um, and now and it, the, the so norms are it, it did. There was, a, there was a great article in The New Yorker called The New Normal. Uh, which came out in the course of last year. Perhaps you saw it. I and did. It described, the opening story was how, you know, within a few days of the election, swastikas were painted on Jewish gravestones in Brooklyn. And yes. but the, in addition, the point was that they were painted wrongly. Uh, uh, were uh, painted yeah, wrongly these are, yeah, that they were so neo-Nazis who weren't well experienced in being neo-Nazis. <laughs> they were trying out their Nazism because they had suddenly been given, apparently, in their own perception, they'd been given license to do so. There was a new normal. Yeah, yeah, a, mm -hmm. and a dramatic change. Um, Kurt, what else? You know, I have just been, this has been fascinating, because again, to, to every, talking agency, talking, you know, locus of control, these are all behavioral components. And so it is this, it's this experiment at a scale that is massive around uh, concepts or ideas that are important that I think is just, I, I, am, I am actually in awe. So uh, this, is, this has been fascinating for me um, in all of these things. The one thing I do want to ask on, uh, just on the end, you, know, you talked about all the behavior change that you've seen and different things. Uh, but are you getting kids going to the county budget meetings? 
you know, you know, the funny thing is we are. Um, we, uh, <laughs> we, ended up, we ended up developing a, a project which we call the Policy Fight Club. Okay. So we did a bit of a, we did a, we finally did a bit of a segmentation analysis on our audience uh, to show that, okay, the vast majority of, of young Kenyans, the quote we got was, they don't even know if they care, right? They're so far in the rejection space, you know, don't even bother me with this stuff. And then we had a few people who were kind of hanging near the door, but unfortunately they were like stooges. So the guys... The young people who were willing to consider going to the budget hearing only doing so because they've got a cousin who's going to give them a contract at the end, you know. Yeah, and, then, yeah. and then there were a couple of other segments who were cross, frustrated and angry. So actually what we've ended up doing is we've, we've been calling those people together into these policy fight clubs. Now, the sad truth of the matter is that uh, our client for this work, which was the World Bank, became uncomfortable with the notion of a fight club. So we had yeah. to water it down which is one of my great sadnesses. We have to call it a policy handshake now, which is a, really a retreat from, uh, from a, so we call them PFCs in our office because a PFC, at least we know where it came from. We know it came from a fight club. But we, so we have these events where we call local county officials together and we recruit from our online audience, the angry and the frustrated, the guys who at least have some energy to show up. And we have a debate. But we ask each side to represent the other argument. Yeah. So the local officials have to pretend that they're youth and like, like. And then we have a really engaging day, and and we record the whole thing. So we film it and we document it. And so on the day, and a great a great experience is had by all. Usually the local officials are scared when they come. Oh, yeah. They leave friends and great things have happened. And then we take the highlights of the story and we play those back to our national audience, to the I don't even know if I cares. So to those guys, we just say every month we go, oh, by the way, we were, uh, we were in Bermet for a policy handshake last week. And um, we had a great time. Look at this. Here's a quote from the county guy. Here's a quote from the local party person. Here's a quote from the kids who came along. Here's a quote from the guys who run the motorcycle taxi rank. They're all telling us a fantastic story about new understanding and cooperation. Huh, interesting. End. No value judgment, just to say, you thought nothing was moving. We're here to tell you, you might be wrong. And what we're seeing is, over time, that those, the heads are turning, the extreme heads are turning. Okay, maybe there's something, maybe there's a value in this, maybe democracy can work. Mm -hmm. And our angry guys are saying, I'm on it. I've got, I, know who, I know whose door I'm gonna knock on. And the county, meanwhile, are saying, wow, those young people are not as uh, problematic as I thought. Maybe we should leave the door open for them next time. Yeah. Maybe so, it's not just my wife's nephew who gets in the room. Um, so, so, so it's an interesting one, and we're mapping the process. So yes, in the end, in the answer, a few, a very few have attended. The <laughs> <laughs> one, of the, one, of the, one of the big uh, things that we see, one of the big uh, tools uh, or blind spots that, that we have is social is, excuse me, is um, status quo bias, that, that we are much more, uh, w it's, it's hard for us to give up the status quo. And you're obviously successfully overcoming status quo bias with, uh, with these campaigns, with, with, with the communication, with the well-told story, because you're getting people to discard the status quo in favor of a new norm. Yep. One of the things that comes to my mind though, Rob, is what about the government? What about ah. the policy leaders? They have a status quo that they're mm -hmm. engaged in, that they are wedded to, just like everyone else is. Uh, what about them? Uh, what about so, them? So it's true that uh, we, I must, I must say that we are, we are about to, to change our strategy with regard to government. And that's mostly because for the last several years, we have decided to keep our heads down that actually our audience are only interested to the government in an election year for that cynical purpose that led them to enrage young people in 2007 and beginning of 2008. So in terms of, it's, there's an extraordinary blind spot actually when it comes from government looking at young people, but it starts to change. And uh, so 
we have decided in the last few years to say, actually, we're going to focus fully on our target. We're not going to be concerned with government. We're going to drive behavior from the ground up. And if we can find a way to work with government along the, along the way, we will. But actually, we're not going to allow that to become our, our mission. And mm -hmm. I think that these days, we are, we are a little bit more of a force in the world. And we are uh, more widely acknowledged for our work. And I think we are now having quite constructive conversations with, with sort of senior leaders and also junior leaders. So at the level of our policy uh, handshakes, <laughs> really good engagement there. And I think we're also now starting to get some very good engagement right at the top. So I think this year, actually, as, a, as an organization, we're starting, and even this morning, actually, I was meeting on this to say, how do we bring what we've learned and what we can do to, to the, at least firstly to the attention of government, because we don't agree with a lot of their policies when it comes to young people, but also they don't know what our young people are doing and they don't know what we're seeing. So the data we've been collecting on, for example, around the election, when we were trying to understand what are young people really talking about? So the assumption is that young people are throwing slanderous ethnic barbs at one another online like everyone else, but actually our data shows that young people are only talking about elections as the sixth most relevant topic. Even in the month of an election, they're firstly talking about um, infrastructure, they're talking about employment, they're talking about civil rights, mm -hmm. they're talking about um, uh, healthcare, and they're talking about corruption, and only then were they talking about uh, elections. And that's news, it turns out here. No one, I mean, no one we've shown that, that data to can really believe that to be the case. Everyone assumes that everyone is just wrapped up in, in basically election fever. Not the case. Young people are deeply concerned with the big underpinning issues of uh, facing the country. And actually, so that's a story we are now um, beginning to tell to senior leadership. Wow. And, it's, and it's only made possible because we're able to see a stream of data go past us that until very recently was actually invisible to the human eye. Um, and it's only because we've been able to apply technology to analyzing that data and to processing it that we're able to give meaning to what would otherwise be an impossible volume of, uh, of individual opinions. But we can aggregate them into a vast consumable data set. It's, it's super interesting. It, it does sound super interesting. And I think the other piece, you, what it, you, you're creating that collective discussion this time Ah. It, it, with different audiences, right? So I hadn't thought of that. That's nice. That's very good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, I, I, I again, just a very fascinating component, and and to that point where you have scale now, and you have the technology to start doing some of that analysis. I think the next two to five years, you're going to be finding some other insights that probably. Again, we make assumptions. We make assumptions as humans because we go, well, this is, the, this is the way I think, so therefore the rest of the world thinks like I think, and we don't. We are all, all in our own little pocket, and unless we understand that pocket, we Absolutely. make major assumptions. I think, that, um, I think the other thing to mention there is that uh, we're also very careful with that data side, that um, at the moment... I mean, we, we absolutely only analyze the data that we have in our server given to us by people who correspond with us. And we're not doing that kind of uh, extended scraping that uh, Cambridge Analytica and others are being accused of. And I think uh, we have a, you know, we spent some time last year actually working on a data uh, policy um, that where we set out our own, um, what we consider to be the ethical boundaries of what we're willing to do within the kind of landscape of European law, which is the kind of uh, the leader on that, even though Kenyan law is very, very uh, lax on this. But we also think that that's extremely important is that one of the things we want to be able to do in future is to allow our audience to benefit from the data that we've been able to collect. Yeah. So for example, young people find it very hard to get access to loans to, to borrow money because they, no, they have no credit history. So how can we create a behavioral trail by gathering data that people give us knowingly and, and enable people ultimately to take that to the bank and say, well, here's, here's proof of who I am and the decisions and behaviors that I've been displaying over the last years. Can we present that 
in a format that allows the bank to give them credit terms. And it looks like they will. So we're quite far down that discussion. So we're working on an API with a microfinance bank that will enable our audience to access funds based on their, their data trail. Their so, data trail though is a, is a social media data trail? Where, where's the data trail coming from? So it is it self-reported or is, is there any objectivity with it? I'm, this is fascinating. Well, it's self-reported, but it's, but it's also quite, it's quite, uh, quite bias-free because it's spontaneously generated social media exchanges. So a bulk of it is what people have said when and how and to whom over, over a long period with us in the conversation. But there's something else we're building, um, which we're calling the, the Hustler MBA. So thinking about our girl with the eggs. Yeah. How did she know how to do that? The, the teaspoon and hustle. The teaspoon yeah. hustle. Yeah. So the truth of the matter, the extraordinary truth is that every year in Kenya, about 1.3 million people enter the job market. And about 10% are going to get a formal job. So that's what the World Bank says. About 10% will get formal. Like, here's a contract. You start on Monday. Everybody else is going to be in some form of informal employment. Many of them are going to have to hustle. They're going to have to figure it out for themselves how they're going to stay ahead, how they're going to keep their heads above water. So our girl, Winnie, came from rural. She ended up in the city. She's on her, she's on the bones of her ass. She's going to have to make it work. She figured something out. So how do we formalize that knowledge? How do we make that a community where people can exchange? So we're building this online MBA. We're calling it the Hustler MBA, where we're finding Kenya's top hustlers to teach what they know. So rather than learning it from your most promiscuous friend, as it were, you can learn it from the best. But in an entirely informal peer-to-peer -peer way, but with online video, with questions. In So what we've done is we've taken a, a very formal, a set of different sort of formal curricula, and we've dissolved that down into some principles. And now we're documenting the hustle journeys of a whole number of very different but very low barrier to entry small businesses. And we're saying, so tell us, your way of managing these processes. So how did you get inspired? Where did you just get the money from? How did you choose the location? How did you choose the hustle? How, did you, how do you treat your customers? How do you do your marketing? How do you do branding? How do you negotiate your inputs? How do you handle the money? How do you manage your staff? What are you gonna do next? And we're having all of our hustlers tell us that story. And then we're chopping it up into, into little classes. So now you can hear 20 different people in 20 different businesses tell us how they do their marketing or how they handle their cash. Or indeed, you can just follow one of those hustlers all the way along to find out how they've made their small business into a success. And along the way, we're gonna, we're gonna make you take some quizzes and develop some knowledge so that by the end, we really do have a trail which tells, you, tells us quite a lot about you that you can then take to the bank. So it's gonna be a combination of that data and several years of social media data, which together can be crunched into a profile, into a persona, that the bank is willing to extend a loan to. And this is a non-traditional bank. This is, this is not a formal savings and micro, loan kind of thing. No, yeah, this right. is a micro lender. That's it's a youth, youth focused micro lender, yeah. So we'll see, we're not there yet, but we're getting quite close. That's, um, that's absolutely terrific. Uh, mm -hmm. The, the uh, working with people sort of on the edge of the, of the norms and helping them find new norms is absolutely terrific. Um, well, we should, we should probably start wrapping up. Yes. Oh, yeah. Which, which you know, you know what that means, Kurt. Oh yes, it's uh, Tim. Tim always has his music question. So we, we did we prep prop? Did we? Did you even let him know this was coming? I read something about it, but I don't remember what's coming next. <laughs> good, good. Well, uh, so we call ourselves the behavioral grooves because we have a behavioral science nerd aspect and we have a music nerd aspect. Mm. Uh, uh. And so we, we bring both of those things. Yes, you're smiling. That's good. I'm, I'm a musician, so I'm, uh, I'm happy to hear it. Brilliant. Brilliant. Mm. Uh, so uh, that's even better. But I'm still scratching my head about how, how do we talk about music from a Scott that's living in Nairobi that is wrote a story about a DJ that is inciting behavioral change. But okay, so let's let's just start with with um, 
a, just a couple, a couple of questions. We'd like to talk about what, what music defines you or, or what music would be your theme music. But let's start with what do you, what do you listen to? Um, bit of blues, bit of Beethoven, bit of bagpipe music. Got the three big B's there. Blues, yeah. Beethoven, and bagpipes. Yeah, that, that, that's good. What, what blues do you like to listen to? Um, I've got, a, I'm a, I'm a eclectic listener. Um, I've been listening to John Lee Hooker recently. Mm. I like some really old stuff. I'm a harmonica player. So anything with a harmonica in it gets me going. Sonny Boy Williamson. Um, the highest point of my entire musical life was playing an evening with Dan Aykroyd. Uh, and I, and a band I was in on a stage set up in the desert in Southern Kenya. Uh, and he and his friends arrived by helicopter. We didn't know who was coming. They touched down. We'd been told to be there with our, with our instruments and a, and a PA system. And we had an evening playing music with Dan Aykroyd. And, uh, <laughs> wow. That was, my, that was my greatest musical wow. moment. So, wow. Yeah. So if, if uh, let's, let's make this grandiose. Uh, Emmys is one thing, but let's say you win the Nobel Prize. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Let's let's get grandiose. What is the music that's that you would want to have played as you cross the stage, receiving your uh, Nobel Prize? The theme tune to Shajaz. The theme tune to our radio show. Good answer. And, uh, All right. Would would we have your your permission to uh, to to play that on the episode? I'll send it to you. I'll send you the groove. Great. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds terrific. Uh, Rob Burnett, thank you so much for your time, your contributions, your discussion. This was uh, absolutely delightful, and we really appreciate uh, you being a part of the Behavioral Groups podcast today. Well, thank you very much. I'm honored to have been invited. I've enjoyed the conversation very much. Uh, I look forward to another encounter in future. Are you ready to groove? I am ready to groove. Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our Behavior Grooves interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our skulls. Skulls. Oh, man, it's getting more anatomical all the time. <laughs> so, Tim, part two of our interview with Rob, what were some of the things that stuck out to you? Well, the over this overarching story of how a comic book is leading social change is just still it's just overwhelming to me it's such a great lesson to sort of the rest of the world as far as i'm concerned um, that we have this opportunity to uh, of course we are being shaped by the media that we consume and here the, uh, this is a group well-told story is going into the market with a very intentional um, and carefully uh, crafted message for their uh, for their audience and it's having these positive powerful effects on 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 the youth in in kenya and tanzania yeah and i want to get back to the part about how the media shapes us because i think that's an important thing and i think there's a a larger issue that we can think about from uh, all of us and what the media that we consume and how that shapes our ideas and our thoughts and various different things but to go into a well-told story i love how they're using the variety of media to really make a difference and the components of all of the different media that they're using to, to shape the conversations that are happening, to change the dialogue and the self-schemas of how people think about themselves, as well as looking at that social change. So talk to me a little bit um, about Coleman's Boat. Uh, I know we, we, we briefly discussed it in the, in the interview with Rob. Yeah. But help me understand a little bit more about what that that uh, contains and, and what are some of the aspects of, of that model. It went by really quickly, and I think it's a it's a very powerful uh, model that hasn't been discussed a lot in recent years. So Coleman, James Coleman, was at the University of Chicago, and what he was trying to do was track 
the way social change happens and what what role does the individual play in that and so he divided into in, into two groups the macro change and the micro change the okay. macro change being sort of the social change of say at an institutional level and the micro change happening at an individual level and said that um Let's say that if we're starting with a social element, that there is going to have to be a micro. If there's a macro uh, change that's going to happen, a micro element has to change as well. We have to change our behaviors individually in order for the social side, the macro side, to change. And so Coleman drew uh, a very simple diagram as a tool to better understand how social at a macro and micro level changes. And what he ended up with was something that looks sort of like a boat. And so... A boat? A boat, A yes. Viking a boat? Kind of not... big cruiser, <laughs> a sailboat. What, what all kind of boat are we talking you know, about, this Sam? is probably more like... A, a Japanese junk is really probably <laughs> what it is. It's a it's a modest sized boat with a with an equally you know the 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 bow and the and the the, the back of it are are about equal and it's just a straight line across the top and a straight line across the bottom. Okay. Um, but this micro change influences the macro change and the macro change influences the micro change and this. Um, this Coleman's boat was just a tremendously powerful tool when uh, when he developed it, and and I was really glad that um, that Rob brought it up, so we have a chance to to remind people of it, and we'll we'll probably put a link to it in the in the uh, in the notes, that so that so good. that people can go go after it. Yeah. Uh, but what did you think about what what's being tracked, Kurt? I mean, this uh, the fact that that Rob's got uh, partners at, at Cambridge and Tulane tracking the social media access um, yeah, 14 parallel studies that are going on at amazing. the moment and i will go back to our conversation with mike ahern and talking about organizations and how organizations don't track or measure yes. their sales incentives yes and you look at the the impact that these guys are having uh, and partly i think because they do do this tracking and they do do the research to understand what works what doesn't work what are the things that they can improve upon and and it's a it's a great lesson i think for all of us to to take back to our organizations whether they be a nonprofit whether they be a for profit whether they be a small company whether they be a large company we need to understand how what we do impacts uh, the people that we're trying to serve. And they're doing a fantastic job with this. They really are. I don't want to let this grooming session end without talking about the teaspoon hustle because uh, for two reasons. One is it's such a great image, right, for us to get our heads around this idea that something so small as a teaspoonful of whatever it is, you know, mm -hmm. a confidence, a teaspoonful of grit gets us to the next day. And in, in, the, in the corporate world that, um, that we work in, I have often seen uh, companies focusing less on the teaspoon and more on the big the big issues. Mm. They focus more on sort of climbing Everest and forget about in order to climb Everest, you have to go through training and dietary changes and all, all kinds of things. Acclimation. That, you have to put one foot in front of the other just to get up right. that, you know, the, the, to base camp. And then from and base camp to camp two and, and keep moving. Each one. And, and I think there's a, there's a component there. I think you can't you can't just focus on the teaspoons because you're you're missing out on that big picture. People are going, but, why am I climbing? Why them. am I taking this? Why no. am I training? What am I doing the step? And, but, and that's what that, that big, hairy, audacious goal is out there. It's It answers the why. Right. right. But the how comes into this teaspoon component. What do we do yeah. every day? What do we consistently do in order to achieve our goals? One of the lines that, that Rob said is, you know, the main thrust of the story is how do we give people the tools they need to economically empower themselves? And how do we give the, them the agency, the feeling that they can do it? Yeah. And you think about that comment. It, it, it's how do we give them the tools, not necessarily just to be able to do it, 
but to give them the, the agency or the feeling that they can accomplish it. And so often, I think we just throw tools at organizations, I'm saying, yeah. throw out tools. They throw out the new program. They throw out this communication without really thinking about, are we providing our people with the agency, with that feeling that they can accomplish whatever it is that you're trying to get them to do, which is so important to driving change. So I... It's a, it's a lesson, again, I will say that, you know, Rob doesn't call himself a behavioral scientist, but, man, he is getting all of the behavioral science components right. So Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you, I know that uh, when we were talking about this earlier, you wanted to, to talk about the, the actual impact, some of the, some of the data, right, some of the measures, the actual impact that ShoeJazz and, um, and you know, well-told story are having on the youth in Kenya. Yeah. So when he was talking about the increase in safe sex practices, in other words, using a condom um, when uh, among their most ardent fans. So those people who uh, are following them on social media and one other analog platform. And there was an 18% increase in contraception use, in regular contraception use. That's just tremendous. 18%. Yeah. Uh, to, to think that, uh, think about how many lives that's changing. That's a, that's a million plus people in, in the community, in the community, yeah. and and in that tar- in that target audience, and you're yeah. only growing, and so the impact that that has, as well as then you you go back to the story of Winnie, and and again it's an <sighs> N of one, but the change that uh, she was able to accomplish, of taking her business to the next level and increasing their monthly income uh, by you know almost doubling it, yeah. uh, the those small changes that they're doing through a comic book, through a social media, through an FM radio station. I, I, I look at the work that I do and I sit there and I go, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and well, and with Winnie, the part of the, the great example or the part of the story is that her uh, success in business is coupled with her success as a sexually active teenager, mm-hmm. that that the fact that she is now bulletproof has this this twofold benefit to her uh, that is is huge. Yeah, it's huge. And 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 going back to Coleman's boat, right? Those individual changes which drive the the larger societal changes and changing some of the norms. Like it's okay to carry a condom on a date. Um, and, and for, for, for women to do that is, is now socially acceptable because of some of the things that they are putting in place. I think that is, is vastly uh, powerful in, in thinking through what media can do, which takes me back into yes. the media that we listen to and how is that shaping our own thoughts and beliefs. And we've had this conversation before of how uh, if we segregate what we listen to or what we watch or what we read, uh, it lends itself into, you know, forming our own tribes of, of thought and perception and the confirmation bias that comes with that and is only reinforced by the media that we hear and I think it, it's le- leading us down a path that isn't one that is positive, at least in the United States. And I think right. across the world, I think there's more and more of this. I think with the advent of, of the Internet and the variety of different news outlets that are out there um, that you can self-select into hearing only the things that I already agree with. Is a, all is too a, easily. All too easily is, yeah. is, is a very negative component. And I would urge uh, our listeners, I know it's hard. I try to do this. I find myself all the time um, going into news outlets that agree with my already preconceived because ideas. It's, it's easy. Well, it, and I don't like get brain mad. candy. I don't get mad. I get mad. I get, I go, how can you be so stupid when I go to those <laughs> others? Because it's just in disagreement with my preheld beliefs. Yeah. And I, I have to actually stop and, and, and take a, a moment to pause and say, 
just look at that from a different perspective. And I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not saying it has changed my viewpoint, um, you know, 180. Well, but it does. Cal give Turnbull me, would be asking. Yeah. Is it changing your view to some degree, though? I and I think it is. It's giving me a better insight into, you know, why do some people believe what they believe? When I go, that's just that's just crazy horseshit. You know, yeah. <laughs> how well, can you step in that and not smell it? You know, I... well, this is where I really value the research community, the academic community the, uh, of scientists that if there's a theory out there and somebody has evidence that it's not working, they bring that evidence and the, the whole community, we, we still have to deal with our own biases. Oh, yes. At the same time, if there's evidence, then we we have to accept that and move on or we test it we and we we run trials and can we replicate this wouldn't it be great wouldn't it be great oh are you are you like going straight to utopia on this i am going to <laughs> utopia 2.0 <laughs> if we took that scientific process into how we viewed much of our lives right? it's so if hard we, though it it's, is hard it's and... really it's too hard <laughs> I, I think I, I, our brains are too but how about this our brains are too lazy our it, brains it are very lazy and so part of this is let's let's work out our brains okay let's get our brains on a workout <laughs> regimen let's have ourselves do a daily exercise of taking one viewpoint of a different stilt. Like if you're a liberal, go out and watch Fox News for 10 minutes. If you're a conservative, go out and, and watch and just, MSNBC. Do just try whatever to digest something different. And, and, and look at it through eyes that aren't critical, that you don't automatically, uh, you know, just throw out. So you have, to, you have to dial down the judgmentalism, right? Dial that down. Yeah. Okay. Utopia 2.0. I'm, you know what? I'd like to go there. Uh, I would. I have to admit, I'd, I'd like to go there. But right now, it's that time in our episode discussion. This is the teaser from part one, isn't it? <laughs> yes, this is the teaser. Oh. So I just have to bring up the fact that I'm still just sort of impressed and sort of surprised that Rob Burnett still loves the Blues Brothers from, you know, from so many years ago. Yeah. Um, What's and, your favorite Blues Brothers song? Ooh, I yeah. You know what? I'm having trouble coming up with the name. I can see them. Yeah. See, this is the problem with the video experiences. Yeah. Um, and and the, all so many of those were Sam and Dave tunes, and so it's uh, a wish sandwich. A wish. <laughs> I love Dan Aykroyd when he's like, "What do you have?" A yeah. wish. Yeah. Or of course, one of the great lines was. We're in a car <laughs> with sunglasses on at night. <laughs> yeah. Half a tank of gas or yeah. you know, a full pack of cigarettes and a full t- you know, half a half, uh, whatever yeah. it was. Bad um, on those quotes. Anyway, or, we're going to talk other music. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, since uh, we, we just heard uh, the Shoe Jazz uh, theme song, The Hustler. Mm-hmm. Uh, from Kenya, and this is a very uh, kind of contemporary thing. But but what music do you listen to from outside the U.S. and the U.K.? Because I know that you <laughs> have a lot of uh, U.K. bands that you love to listen to. So I have a variety. Um, I, I will go with our last uh, one that we did. I talked about my favorite outdoor concert, and we talked about the Tragically Hip. They're yep. Canadian. So well, okay, uh, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Canadian. It's Canadian, I, I, all right. It's, it's a. Okay. <laughs> Canadian A. a. Um, there are. I could go back to my high school days and my heavy metal thing, and I listened to the Scorpions. You know, a good German band. Yeah, German. Yeah, there you go. Um, you have. Uh, you. I, I have. I was introduced to a uh, a band. Um, from Australia called Powderfinger when I was there, yeah. which is a, a 
fantastic, fantastic band. Um, although my favorite Australian artist is Tim Minchin, who is more of a comedian than he is a musician. Yeah. However, White Wine uh, in the Sun is probably my favorite holiday song ever. From Tim Minchin. Tim Minchin. I notice you haven't mentioned Men at Work when it comes to uh, <laughs> any of your favorite Australian bands. No, I have not entered um, Men at Work. Uh, what was the song that they had? Um, what, what was that song there? Uh, I one. come from the land down under. I come from the land down under. Yeah. Uh, the Vegemite sandwich. Yes. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I have one last one, which is an Estonian indie rock band. Estonian. Estonian. That's from Estonia. Estonia, that small country up there by Finland and Russia. And, it's, it's and part, is that part of the Balkans? Or, it, is, that, or is that too far no, north? Balkans. Right? I should know this. I had an au pair okay, so from the, Estonia who introduced me to this band, oh, and I went and saw them live and what's the at band? 7th Street Entry. Oh. It's called Ewert and the Two Dragons. Ewert? Ewert. Ewert and the e- Two Dragons. W-E-R-T and the Two Dragons, which I don't understand because it's a four-member band, so oh. it's not like the lead singer and then the, the rest of the dragons. I don't I don't get the reference, but maybe it's some Estonian thing. That was like the Thompson Twins and Two Non Blondes. Those are... You know, those are the, the the name of the band had nothing to do with the band's makeup, which yeah. kind of drove me crazy personally. But. <laughs> but they're a really good band, and and I went and saw them live. I like them. I got their album. I listened. Actually, they got a couple of their albums. Oh, so. cool! Yeah, they're, they're, that, that's they're, cool. They're a fun band. And you, your wow. non-U.S. Uh, or U.K. bands. Well, you there. just like went on for. Eva, there! <laughs> Holy smokes! Like what? You're just on El Fuego. You're just on oh, fire oh, with the using with, it. Yeah, with the with the non uh, with, with the non U.S. Uh, based bands. But I, I I wanted to talk about first uh, African music. Okay. Um, dub uh, dub is a, is a, a pretty common African music, and it's it's prevalent around the entire um, uh, really around the entire. Uh, continent okay so you can catch dub in a variety of different ways and if you haven't checked out dub music you can check out dr dub or professor dub how great is that i mean so easy dr dub or and professor dub and i don't know where they get this academic thing going but um but it's uh um dub is is sort of a a close cousin to reggae music so if you like reggae you could check out dub and you're just getting sort of the um you know the one one rung up on the genealogical tree, the musicological tree. There. Okay. So if you check out some of that. And, and what um, what what is dub music like? Is it is it beat based? Yeah. Is it, it, it well, it's it's beat based, but it's no, it's very very similar to reggae. Okay. So if you listen to Bob Marley mm-hmm. and you listen to the reggae, so the the the, the drumming beat and um, is is kind of similar, but dub is more Spartan. Dub is uh, it's 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 more bass and drum, and the guitar tends to be much less, or a keyboard, and the vocal tends to be much less. It's okay. really the whole emphasis is just on on the the drum and uh, and bass. So my son listens to dub beat. Yeah, dubstep. Dubstep. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's an Americanization of of dub. That actually comes from house music, which is totally different. That's like it's closer to rap than it is to reggae. See, well, this is like an, a musical education <laughs> in in a podcast about behavioral science. Here you go. So, okay, beyond okay. Dub, what else? So, what are some specifics? Uh, uh, well, I, I want to. There's uh, well, Doctor Dub, okay. or Professor Dub are really great to check out. So, I would would recommend that. Um, someone who has come into my um, ret- you know review recently is Field Rotation and it's a German band that is into um, this atmospheric kind of uh, music that was introduced to me by my son Connor okay who travels the world as a circus performer and Field Rotation is just lush and it's this incredibly complex mix of both acoustic and electronica and it's tremendously emotional stuff Hmm. it's very very uh highly emotional music and it's just it's just beautiful but i want to end on 
uh, you know, I'm a guitarist, so I love guitar music. And you, you, you you're now calling yourself a guitarist. This is a this is a major step for you, Tim. <laughs> I'm pulling at the cords of self identity strongly, <laughs> and um, that'll be a whole nother podcast, folks. We'll go into that. We will. I, I and I love uh, Spanish guitar. Okay, uh, flamencan music specifically. The technique is fam- is phenomenal. So Paco de Lucia. Okay, and if you're not familiar with Paco de Lucia, he is. I think he's in his late 60s now, but has traveled the world spreading flamencan music um, just with generosity. And he's he's a super cool guy and a, just a phenomenal instrumentalist at the same time. So I like um, flamenco. That's good stuff. Yeah. Okay. So with that, we want to say thank you very much. We want to say thank goodbye you. in Kenyan. I don't know how to do that. But Adios. <laughs> Adios. But we want to say thank you. Check us out on your favorite podcatcher. Give us a nice review if you would. We would really appreciate it. Even though we're listened to in 54 countries, we're always looking for one more. Always looking for one more. And so uh, share this with your friends and uh, family and uh, listen in next time. 